just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence Live. I'm really lucky today because I'm being joined by a great speaker and an incredible storyteller who's so good he even teaches other people how to tell stories and how to transform businesses with stories as well. He's quite well known for his product, Story Sailing. After the titles, we're going to meet Dave Bricker. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the podcast for speakers and professionals or anyone who wants to present with impact. Hosted by presentation persuasion coach John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, there couldn't be an easier way to get started than getting started with Buzzsprout. They have all the tools and resources you need for starting a podcast and getting it out to all the major podcasting networks. Check out the link in the show notes and get your podcast started today. Okay, great stuff. Well, welcome, Dave. Welcome to Speaking of Influence. It's nice to nice to have you on. Great to be here, John. Thank you. I really appreciate you you coming on the show. When when we had a chat a little while back, uh, you were really really interesting to speak to, uh, and a, a real delight as well. Uh, and I know you've got some some really great stories. Like stories is one of your specialities, uh, and you do uh, you do speaking coaches. Uh, I, I'm going to start off the bat with uh, with a really random question for you before we get into uh, before we get into today's stuff. So I want to know, Dave, what's the worst meal you've ever eaten? The worst meal I've ever eaten. Oh, I think that had to be on a camping trip I took in high school with some friends, where you just throw a bunch of stuff in the car, some cans of this and jars of that. And you get to the campsite, you go fishing all day, you come back and you think, oh, I'm so hungry. And you start throwing stuff together and you add a little of this and a little of that. It's kind of like building a house without any kind of architecture. You just start nailing boards together and you end up with just this hill of lumber. <laughs> but you pulled it, you pulled it together. I think He's... either that or we went out to eat. I can't quite remember. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Thanks for that memory. You're very welcome. I thought it would be a, an interesting way to, to start the show. Uh, if I try and think about what's the worst thing I've ever eaten, I think it has to be uh, when I was a student, my parents sent me a, um, a food package and my mum included, if you ever had tin spam, Right. My mom included a tin of spam and uh, I decided to fry it up and make spam fritters. And I have to say, I think it's probably the worst thing I've ever eaten. Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> good stuff. All right. Thanks for that, Dave. Always good to get into, uh, find out a little bit more about you. Um, but to come back to the more professional stuff, you actually go, well, you do public speaking, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're here. And you also um, help 
businesses to transform through telling stories uh, with your story sailing project, your story sailing brand. So tell me uh, a bit more about, about your background as a speaker and as a trainer. My background really is communications, and it always has been since before I realized that that was the background I was building. I drew pictures all over my homework assignments, all through high school and even into college. I was a, a chronic doodler, and that was that. In high school, I also discovered uh, playing music. I still play guitar to this day. It's something I, I love to do. I'm passionate about playing guitar. It's one of the things I continue to get better at at my age. And so those were some foundations. Then in college, I also started discovering computers. I bought a, a Mac Plus in 1987. It had one megabyte of RAM and no hard drive, <laughs> <laughs> but it had a mouse and a screen and you could draw pictures on it. And I was, I was mesmerized. So it's always been communication. I've always loved to write. And then I guess what happened is I started editing and designing a book for someone who was a professional speaker. And I'd known other people who were professional speakers and as is my MO, I said, you know, I could do that. So I started writing and I started speaking. And I mean, I make it sound like it happened overnight. It's a, a many years evolution. But to me, it all goes together. The, 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 the speaking, the graphic design, learning to speak is like learning to play a musical instrument. And your voice and your body are an instrument. Yeah, very, very much so. And uh, I've had several, several guests on speakers who talk about the musicality of speaking and treating your voice with respect. And uh, I've even brought on a professional voice artist before. I think one of the people, one of the, the kinds of people who I will need to get on in the future is somebody who specializes in, uh, in voice training and, uh, and uh, tr getting people to get the best out of their voices. That's something I don't think I have done yet. For for you though, you you have definitely specialized in in storytelling. Why why was that? What was it about stories that took you down that path? Well, I was I was a private prep school kid in high school, and I was destined for a career as a doctor or a lawyer or what whatever traditional path had been prescribed for me. Not not that I was fighting that. But after my first year of college, I met these people who lived in the sailboat anchorage in Miami. Most of them didn't have a dime, and they would odd job their way around for a while. But then when the, when the season came, when the time was right, they'd take what small savings they had, what small store of supplies, and they'd head off for faraway places. And they had remarkable stories of, of storms and running aground and, and crazy happenings in all of these remote, faraway places. And I thought, wow, adventures aren't just something you have in, in books and movies. You can really have adventures, but you have to go out and get them. Don't let the money stop you. Don't let all of the traditional obstacles, all the what-if thinking stop you. Go out and do that. And so by the time I was 23, I bought a 26-foot sailboat for $3,000 and started fixing it up. I was still in college at the time. And uh, six months after I graduated, I uh, took off for the Bahamas with $40 in my pocket and a locker full of food and dreams and started chasing stories. <laughs> wow. Did you go by yourself or did you have some crew with you? I went by myself. 
That's amazing. Was that not a bit scary as well? Yeah, it, it was scary. And I did have a friend go with me for the Gulfstream crossing and that friend flew back because I just wasn't ready for that hop from Miami to the Bahamas by myself. Subsequently, I did it. But the bigger question is, yeah, it's scary. But I was more worried about growing old and looking back and regretting the things I hadn't done because I'd been too afraid to do them. And people, it's the same people who say, weren't you terrified who spend two hours a day on the expressway? And they're in far more danger than I ever was, even on my Atlantic crossing, which I did in 91. Yeah, yeah. Statistically speaking, for sure. I mean, I, I used to fly the friendly skies and uh, and people would say, are you worried about that? So I've actually been in some uh, flight emergencies and I still probably felt safer than I do uh, on busy motorways and the like. So I get exactly what you're saying. And probably statistically speaking, you are generally much safer. Um, but yeah, um, what was what was your first adventure then after you set sail? I think my first adventure, well, the real adventure, just getting the boat together, living in the anchorage, meeting all of the wild characters. I didn't even realize that was the first adventure until later. And But then once I got to the Bahamas and sailed around the Bahamas, and then my friend said, hey, Dave, it's been a week. My daughter's about to have a baby. I need to get back to the States. See you later. And I took him to shore and I went back to the boat and said, wow, I'm all alone in a foreign country with no money. What's going to happen next? And then everything unfolded from there. But I think the first adventure was just that realization that, yeah, I'm, I'm on my own now out here in this beautiful blue wilderness. So sometimes it's just uh, the decision to start doing something that starts, that, that starts the journey, that starts the adventure. And uh, we all have we all have that, and we all have that potential in our lives as well. And, and I would agree that if you're not having some adventure in life, if you if you've uh, managed to avoid all that, it's, uh, it doesn't doesn't show signs signs of a life well lived. Well, people are so afraid they're going to be scared, and 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 most of the fears that we that keep us back begin with the words "What if?" We are held so so far back by our own imaginations. And it's just, it's, it's tragic. So many people never live because they're afraid to live. Go out and do it. And it's the same thing with public speaking, by the way, to keep this topical. Oh, what if I get on stage and, and, and I forget a line? Or what if I get on stage and, and people don't pay attention or they don't like my, well, what if? What do you, what is, it's not going to cause you physical pain. And every speaker bombs sooner or later. And you pick yourself yeah. up and you try to figure out why. Sometimes it's you. Sometimes it's the fact that they have you scheduled to speak at 8 o'clock in the morning and everybody's been partying the night before. And nobody wants to be there. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's part of the journey. You're going to run aground. You're going to hit storms. But you make the passage because that's living. Yeah, I, I agree with you absolutely. Um, I think one of the biggest things that uh, that I think initially maybe slowed my journey, but maybe slows and stops many many people, is this sort of fixed mindset mentality of that if you do bomb, if you do uh, mess up, 
that it means you can't do it. It means you're not good enough. And it absolutely doesn't mean that. And that's why the the growth mindset part is so important here in terms of just understanding it's just feedback. It's just like, oh, you found out something that didn't work. Um, you had an experience that there's an opportunity to learn from and to, to grow and develop from. And if you can get back up onto a, a stage or any kind of platform after that kind of experience, then that's a, a real testament to personal uh, mental resilience and keeping going despite failures, despite challenges, because success doesn't come without the challenges, right? Yeah, and there are famous stories too. Barbara Streisand had a major panic attack, stage fright attack on stage and didn't appear on stage again for 27 years. There are people who really, uh, Paul McCartney used to, used to, apparently used to vomit before his early performances. He was so terrified to get up in front of people. People have these, these reactions, but you know, you know it's funny. I, I, one of my good friends and mentors in the speaking business is, is a NSA Hall of Fame speaker named Bruce Turkel. And as I was getting started, Bruce said, it's not a question of if, but when. You're going to bomb one day. One day you're going to be in the middle of your slideshow and the projector bulb's going to blow. And those things will happen to you. It's the way you handle them. And those things have both happened to me. And each time, instead of freaking out, I was able to think, yes, it's finally happened. I can tick that box. It's now a rite of passage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you, have you ever had that sort of level of stage fright that we talk about? No, I, I never had that level because I was a, a university professor for 15 years. I was in front of students and I guess because I was, older than them. And there's a certain hierarchy in the classroom where you're at least supposed to be the authority figure. Of course. And also I didn't, I never, as a teacher, and this is a whole side topic, teachers generally don't think of themselves as professional speakers, attorneys, any number, they just think of, okay, I'm here to deliver data to people. And it, it really makes education boring for a lot of, of students and and any, anyway, like I said, that's a, a sideline. But this idea of of um, I'm just trying to think how to how to phrase it. This I'm sorry, I lost the question. I went off on my side. <laughs> I was asking about about st- fear of stage fright. So, so you, you had fright. you had all your teaching experience right. behind well, you. I had so. my teaching experience and. And so I was able to kind of ease into it. But they said, hey, you've got your you've got the qualifications. You're hired. Here's your classroom. Go figure out how to teach. And (laughs) and I did. I really had no choice but to get in front of a bunch of people. But they were significantly younger than me. And I'm easygoing by nature. I didn't have to get up and really use my instrument and be a presenter and keep my audience engaged. So it's a different style, uh, and it can be. I know lots of people do very different styles of teaching, some clearly more engaging than others, uh, but it may also depend on what's being taught and, and the environment you're in. But on a stage, the engagement part uh, is is a huge part of it, keeping people hooked into what you're saying. Um, where did you first start learning how to do that? I started learning how to do that because... 
I joined the National Speakers Association. That's the NSA that talks, not the NSA that listens. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I started studying the art of speaking. And then later on, I joined Toastmasters. I got my, my uh, Distinguished Toastmaster Award last year. Wonderful. And it's a matter of doing a lot of speaking in front of a lot of people and working on the art of speaking. It's a craft. It's something you develop. But many people feel, again, teachers, for example, most teachers think, okay, I'm an expert in my subject. I'm going to go share my expertise. I'm going to break it up into lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, whatever it is. And I'm going to deliver that data to students. Guess what? Books can do that. You're not needed to do that. People can learn data from a book. If, if you've got a master's degree or a PhD in your subject, hopefully it's because you're actually interested in it. And if you can't learn to use your instrument to inspire your audience to be interested in what you're interested in, then you're just another data drudge and you're part of the problem with education today. Yeah, absolutely. Um I was just thinking about Chip and Dan Heath's book, Made to Stick, where they, they talk quite a lot about research into that people, if, if you're teaching just facts and data, people really don't remember it, that stories increase memory retention of, of data much, much more than just dry facts, dry information. And it makes a huge difference to people being able to recall that. I think they actually do a really good job of demonstrating that right at the start of the book as well. With uh, I still remember the story the story about the, the pigs, the swimming pigs. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's stuff that stays, stays in your head and, and makes a huge difference. Um, you've dedicated a lot of time and energy to, to storytelling. What do you think are some of the critical things that people need to know and understand about storytelling? Well, my golden rule of storytelling is that stories are always about people. Now, sometimes that meta that's metaphorical. Sometimes stories may seem to be about talking animals or aliens, but at least on that metaphorical level, stories are always about people. And there are some implications of this. If you're talking about prices, processes, ingredients, data, you're not talking about people, and therefore you're not telling stories. If you're not talking about people, you're not telling stories. If you're not telling stories, you're not connecting. And if you're not connecting, you're not selling. And anyone listening who's cringing because, oh, he used the S word, selling is not about conning people out of their money or convincing them to part with their assets. Anyone who's put a child to bed or tried is selling. Anyone yeah. who's who's asked someone on a date or asked someone for a job or a promotion is selling. And selling is the process of getting people to know you, like you, and trust you so that they actually want to conduct business, whether that business is the business of life or the business of commerce. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about um, that you do, you help businesses to transform through storytelling. Uh, is it just in sales or are there other transformations? Well, again, it's all sales to a degree, no matter what you're doing. But but yeah, I think it, it, it has to do with any kind of communication. So for example, you go into an organization, a larger organization, and the C-suite has some idea of what it is that the company does 
and what the comp and what the customers need. But get down in the trenches with the customer service team, and they're going to tell you a completely different story about what the customers want and what the customers need. And then you go to the sales team, and they're going to have their own view. And the disparities between these perspectives can be vast. And when you get into a company and you do some workshopping on that stuff and you harmonize the story, some interesting things happen. Among those is that everybody feels that they're part of a, of a bigger story. So let's take HR, for example. How do you attract and retain talent? And if you're in a big tech firm, if somebody poaches one of your engineers, it can cost you 15 grand to onboard and train a new person. Losing people is, is painful and expensive. So how do you keep people on board? If they're just a cog in the machine, if they just have a task to do, they're not part of a story and somebody else is gonna offer them a little bit more money and they'll say, hey, great, time to jump ship. Especially in high-tech industries, who keeps a job more than three years? Not many people, right? They're always hopping around. It's, it's that kind of, of an industry. But if you involve people in a story and you make what they do meaningful and they're producing a particular outcome, whether it's for the customers, whether it's for the business, the organization, and they feel part of something, then it becomes a much more emotional decision as to whether or not they want to leave for more money. Because yeah. They're not really there for the money. Can, can you give give like an example of of maybe someone you've worked with? If you can name company names or whatever, but uh, either way, just a, a situation where where you've been able to help that and, and what what a uh, bit of what the process looked like. Well, I'll tell you one where there was a pharmaceutical company, and I, I'm not going to name names of clients. It's it's a fortune pharmaceutical company and, and, and I don't use clients as trophies. So I keep those relationships confidential. However, they had a big problem. They had a, a drug. It was a, a biologic drug that treated conditions like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune problems. And they had their particular solution and they noticed some problems. First of all, the time between diagnosis and first treatment was an average of six weeks. If you've got rheumatoid arthritis eating away at your, at your uh, cartilage, your connecting tissues and things like that, then waiting six weeks without medication is, is a big problem. And the other thing is doctors were just prescribing uh, whatever they were most familiar with. And sometimes that was the right uh, solution. And sometimes it was not the best solution for the patient. And then doctors hate it when pharmaceutical companies market directly to patients because the patient comes into the office and says, doctor, what if I take drug X instead of drug Y? And the doctor's thinking, oh, great. Some pharma companies feeding my patients heads, you know, filling them up with all this crap that now I have to fend off. We, uh, we decided we would create a completely non-commercial resource. We went through all the benefits of the drug, all the risks of the drug, all the clinical trial and registry data, and all of the natural history of the various diseases. Now, when we proposed the ideas to the doctors, they said, 
we really we can get all this information on PubMed. We're really not interested. Don't waste your time and your money. The company spent $14 million on this website and they didn't spend it all with me. Let me not, it's not, not a, a bragging thing. I was, I was one of many people involved with this project, but it was fascinating. They had a hundred people writing content for this and a whole floor of their office building dedicated to this team. It was a big deal. When we launched it, we made it for, it had no disclaimers, now, the FDA says, oh, you have, if you don't disclose all the benefits and risks in equal proportion, you have to put a big disclaimer on it. Well, we disclosed all the benefits and all the risks. We made it non commercial. We gave all the data and we made it look like a medical journal with paper textures because the printed word has a certain amount of authority, whereas we see stuff online, you know, black, black text on a white background, it doesn't do much for us. And by understanding the doctor's story and serving this information in a way that was engaging to them, very text heavy, not what you'd usually do with a website, none of the commercial language. As a matter of fact, the FDA said, hey, you didn't disclose risks and benefits in equal proportion. You can't launch this. And we said, well, we've got four times as much risk information as benefit information. Do you want us to hype the benefits or withhold the risks? And we literally changed the way pharma products get marketed in the United States with this project. The final survey of 1,000 doctors, 999 loved it. The one who didn't said that uh, he would have done it differently because he had his own idea for doing it. So he had a sour grapes reaction. And the company made $4 billion off of their $14 million investment. And that's the business outcome. They got the right treatment to the right patients. And those patients who this drug was not right for, they got the right treatment for them. And that's all right. They went after their market share. Not It wasn't a competitive thing. It was just, we have our place in this ecosystem. Understanding the patient story, understanding the physician story, understanding the perspective of an ethical pharmaceutical company. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it does exist. Sure. And figuring out how to put all those stories together, magic results. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a, a great insight there as well. It's pretty nice of you to take us through through that experience and that process. I want to, to come into, I mean, you also teach, um, and I guess from, from the stage as well, some, some of the storytelling techniques. Can you can you share with us what you think is most important about telling a story from a platform, like getting up to speak and tell a story? So this is more of the not not so much what to say it, but how to say it. And I think that most speakers never really use their their full range. And that means their range from low to high, their range from fast to slow and their range from from mild to wild and it's it's this there are a lot of different sliders on this little control panel uh the the different spectra and when we learn to use that so we can take we can take a line like have you ever wanted to speak out but we're afraid to say anything okay it's a good speech opener it's a provocative line but there are two actions in it they're speaking out and there's being afraid. And then 
there's the long pause where where you start the question and you make people lean forward in their chairs. You might say, have you ever wanted to speak out? But we're afraid to say anything. And using that range takes the takes the dynamic, takes the power of that line and multiplies it many times. So writing a speech out line by line, a speech is not an essay. Don't, don't write it in paragraphs. Write it in lines. Underline the emphasis words. Add ellipses or dashes or whatever works for you to create pauses. And learn every line as theater instead of trying to memorize the words. The speech will memorize itself and your delivery will be much more powerful. I think it's important that a lot of people who who do speaking, um, especially if it's in business environments, neglect almost completely, if not completely, the performance element of of speaking. Even if you're speaking to the board, there's still a performance element to it. And if if everything you're saying is like monotone, drawn out or super fast and just trying to get through it as quickly as possible. Um, it's very hard for people to actually get a full grip of what you're saying and nothing you're saying is going to stand out. And it, it really also doesn't make you look like you're competent or professional as being able to present in those sorts of ways. Um, do you, do you think everyone has the potential to reach, uh, to reach those sorts of outcomes of being able to deliver talks and presentations with much greater um, range and variety? Well, I've seen pathologically shy people, the ones who stare at their feet and extend the limp noodle handshake to you because they're terrified to meet you. I've seen people like that in, in a matter of two or three months getting up there on the stage with a big smile on their face, moving around, waving their arms and, and, and gaining that confidence. And look, I lived on a sailboat by myself. I invented introvert and I do this and I'm still an introvert. It's not that I've changed and it surprises people to hear that about me. But yeah, yeah, I think anybody can and should learn to do this. And I also think, and I've seen it. This is one of the reasons I love Toastmasters. First of all, I can coach you all day, but I can't give you an audience. If you work with me or any speaker coach, join Toastmasters and practice with a live audience. It's very rewarding. And it is the cheapest therapy in the world because that confidence will bleed into other areas of your life. And you'll find yourself much more comfortable when it's time to uh, talk about money in business or ask somebody for a date or ask for a raise or negotiate on your house, whatever it is, that stuff bleeds through and, and changes your life. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I was being asked yesterday uh, about uh, about public speaking and uh, much like yourself, I, I'm very naturally introverted. Uh, and again, a lot of people don't believe that. Like, when you're doing all this stuff, like <laughs> doing daily uh, videos and uh, doing lots of stuff online and podcasting. It's like, are you really interested? Not, not like I was. I mean, I, I was painfully shy. And uh, but public speaking is one of the things that's helped me to to come out of that. I'd say even the the podcasting and the video stuff has pushed me even further, where I now tend to describe myself as more ambivert with uh with introvert leanings because i'm able to push myself out the box and be be more extrovert 
especially in these sorts of in, in my podcasting and, and in public speaking or presentation and, and networking environments and the likes that I held myself back from being able to do before. Um, it's it's opened the, the doors in my mind, at least, to be able to go out there and and just just do it. It's like, okay, let's see what happens. <laughs> let's uh, be more outgoing. Let's go and start this conversation. And let's go and ask this person who uh, um, I've never met before, but is quite well known, uh, a few questions or if they'll come on my podcast. And that th- things I never would have done before. And um, I do think you know, that public speaking and presentation skills, when you really get into it and you start doing it in front of audiences and putting stuff out there uh, live or in person or online or whatever, um, you start to, be, you have to start becoming more than you are. You have to take the journey of personal development to do that. No question. No question. It's great for everybody. And look, I'm still an, uh, I'm, I'm still an introvert and I stay at home with my dogs all day by myself working perfectly happy. Uh, This quarantine has been a lot harder on other people than it has been on me because I'm home with my dogs. I would be anyway most of the time. Now I'm doing less platform speaking and I do enjoy it, but I've adapted well to the virtual platforms. I'm okay. And I know more extroverted people, especially uh, younger single people who would rather be dating. And this is just devastating to them, this, this whole pandemic with the lockdown. But yeah, when, but if you, it's interesting, if you put me in a room and you put me on the platform to speak to 200 people in a room, no problem, I can do that. If you put me in a networking event where I've got to wander around and pretend to be interested in what every individual does for a living and start up conversations, hoping that there might be some point of common interest, to me, that's like being eaten by an ant. <laughs> I, I can't stand that. And I know a lot of professional speakers who are introverts because when they're on the stage, we're on the stage, we control the conversation. And the people who come up to speak with us afterward are specifically interested in something we said. There's no, hey, what do you do? As if that's anything I would normally start a conversation with. I I had never really thought about that. That is like, okay, it it makes sense now that, I, I know some really extrovert speakers and they're great, but the vast majority of people I know who do speaking are either professional speakers or do a lot of speaking work as part of their life or business, uh, the majority are introverted. And uh, and I hadn't ever really thought that it does, it does give you that level of control over the conversation and what people end up coming to talk to you about. I, I pretty much agree with that as well. Um, what What are your favorite things to talk about from the stage? I essentially, I talk about what to say and how to say it. I've got two, uh, two presentations. One is more of a keynote, which is story, story sailing. And I talk about what stories are and how stories work and some of the mistakes that storytellers make and offer some strategies for how you can tell a story in a way you have to learn to tell your story about the listener. And that sounds very counterintuitive, but I can tell you about uh, an ocean passage that I made and you'll give me about three or four minutes of your attention. And then you go, Hmm, this guy's up there talking about himself. Interesting story, but Hey, I, I, I heard my phone buzz and I need to check my email. 
when I get to a certain point in that story and I say, have you ever felt like that? Like you're out in the middle of the ocean with no land in sight. And there are these big ships passing by and they can't even see you. And you just want to be noticed. And everyone says, yeah, I get that. So I'm telling my story about the audience. So that's the story sailing presentation. And then the other one is my speaking blunders presentation. It's, you know, take your talk from the page to the stage to the screen. And it's really live coaching. It's an interactive workshop. And I'll take exercises kind of like that, that one I did with the, have you ever wanted to speak out? And I've got a whole collection of those. And I walk people from the audience through them. And sometimes I do it for groups of professional speakers. Sometimes I do it for groups of professionals. Uh, I've done it for Toastmasters groups and everybody gets really engaged with it. And I create that comfortable environment where people can come and learn the skills and practice the skills and think about the skills. And Are there, are there any particular stories that have been created from people from those events that, that you've had that's, that's stick with you that's like oh yeah that was incredible i don't well i don't actually have people create stories at the at the events so much as in the in the uh 52 speaking blunders presentation uh mostly people are just practicing the lines but what does stick with me is sometimes how differently somebody would deliver the line than i would they'll emphasize different words or give different uh different pacing or put the pauses in different places and sometimes like wow i would never have thought of that that really works and it isn't necessarily because somebody studied speaking and they have their own way of climbing the mountain sometimes it's just that natural speaker coming out of them and, and i love it because it's not about teaching people to speak like me it's about teaching people to speak like themselves and when that comes out it's extremely rewarding and yeah, surprising yeah it's, it's incredible to see to see that as well when uh, when you're often said what's one of your favorite stories to tell i tell a story very often when i open my my keynote where i was leaving the bahamas headed back to miami and for our listeners who don't know between the it's from the from Bimini, from that chain of islands to Miami is only about 45 miles. But in that 45 miles, there's a northward flowing current called the Gulf Stream. And if the weather is calm, it's beautiful. I've seen it with waves that were 100 feet long and six inches high, like sheets of undulating glass. Beautiful. But when the wind opposes the current, it gets really rough probably rougher than I ever saw on my Atlantic crossing in 91. It's a very rough piece of water. And I left to left in the afternoon to do an overnight crossing to come into Miami in the morning and got about halfway across and the temperature dropped and the seas came up and the temperature dropped and the seas came up. And this is the only time I ever tied a rope around my waist and lashed myself into the cockpit because waves were breaking over the boat. I was towing a dinghy. It's a miracle that I managed to keep the dinghy. I looked back once and it was 15 feet in the air. And <laughs> it was it was scary. 
And I looked up to the top of my mast and my light was starting to dim. My battery was dying. So I was invisible out there and my path converged with two cruise ships and a gigantic, uh, I mean, two freighters and a gigantic cruise ship, an ocean liner. And of course they were all lit up. I could see them, especially the ocean liner. Those things are gigantic Christmas trees, but in those waves that were as big as my boat, with my little light out. I mean, even with my light bright, they probably couldn't have seen me. So I dodged the freighters and the last one was the ocean liner and it was pretty close. It was really going to intersect my course. So I, I turned off at the last second to cut behind it. And as I looked up into the stern of that ship, I could hear the, I could hear the thrumming of the engines and, there are flashing lights in the disco in the in the stern of the ship, and I could see the silhouettes of people dancing. And there's this, this this sort of beat, this drumming coming out of it over the sound of the engines. And I thought, my God, these people are having a very different experience than I am in the same place at the same time. I'm fighting for my life, and they're fighting to get to the bar for their third margarita, and they don't even know I'm here. And this is the part of the story where I say, have you ever felt like that in your business? And I pivot to this, this importance of communication skills. But yeah, it's an absolutely true story. But the, the surreal, the surreality, the surrealness, I don't know the word, but <laughs> of realizing I was out there. And I mean, if they had run me over, they would never have known. Nobody would have seen anything, heard anything. Nobody, I mean, little boat out there and that. And to them, that's not even rough seas. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Quite, quite, the, uh, quite the juxtaposition of, con- of experiences there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <we're good> stories. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Um, so, Dave, we're, we're coming toward the end, end of our time on the live show, but uh, I do want to make sure that... Uh, people can find out more about you and about story sailing and get in contact with you. What's the best way for people to come and find out more about you? The best way for people, there's actually two places. One is storysailing.com and I'm all over social media, but uh, storysailing.com, S-A-I-L-I-N-G. And then there's a new thing that I've launched, which is training for speakers. And that's at 52speakingblunders.com. Fantastic. Well, definitely, we'll make sure that that's in the show notes and uh, people can go and check those links out. I like to always ask my guests, uh, other than maybe your own books, um, whether there are any books that you would recommend. It might just be something that you've really enjoyed reading recently, or it might be something that's like, oh, yeah, this book was like changed my thinking on this and it was incredible. What would be your recommendations, Dave? I'll give you two. One, and, and I like audiobooks because I spend so much Me time too. reading on screen that I can't shift out of editor mode anymore with a paper book. And I used to love paper books, but different story. I love uh, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It by Chris Voss. I just yeah. think that's full of fantastic uh, communication, communication skills. I have it right and, here. and the audiobook is so well narrated. 
It's uh, on my go. table right here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been through that one twice. I, I read yeah. to it every so often because it's just so full of good ideas. The other one, and and now I forgot the author's name, so shame on me, but it's a novel called Shantaram. And it is a it is a bestseller, but if you love audiobooks, the narrator for this book does all of the voices and the accents, the men, the women, people from different parts of the world. And he brings that book to life in the most remarkable way. And if you want to listen to not only a great story, but listen to somebody who's, I mean, this guy's like Mel Blanc, who did all the Looney Tunes characters. The, the vocal work is just absolutely over the top. And there's a lot to learn there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that sounds great. I I love things like that. One one of my favorite audiobook experiences over the last year or so has been uh, listening to the Welsh actor Michael Sheen uh, narrating Philip Pullman's books. Uh, again, someone he does all the voices, and I, normally I listen to books at double speed, but with with fiction or with comedy and things like that, I, I listen at normal speed. But he he's incredible. It just uh, just really live. And, get pulled into that world so I can fully get that. When, when somebody's uh, such a good narrator, it, you get pulled into the story. And, and I love I love that uh, that whole, it was like a one-person performance. There's some incredible, incredible stories out there. Though this is this is really wonderful stuff. It's been, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Uh, now, you've already said that people should uh, definitely check out Toastmasters. I 100% agree with you there. Uh, it's a wonderful organization. I'm part of it myself here in Valencia, and, and we're in our competition season right now as well. So that's the World Championship of Public Speaking is kicking off for this year. And uh want to ask you what, what um, other advice, what the final words of advice would you leave for people um, who may be watching or listening to the show? Final words or advice, don't be too hard on yourself. It's a journey. Don't compare yourself to other people, especially people who are much farther along on that journey than you are. One of the, I mean, people will, will say, oh, Dave, you're a natural. It's like, no, I'm not a natural. I, when I was born, I didn't know how to speak a word just like you. I've just worked on this. And though it may feel like a compliment, if you look at people, oh, they're a natural usually they're not. And if they're one of those lucky few who just have a, a talent for it, well, great, but you can get better. You can get much better and take as long as you need to take to do it. But as soon as you compare yourself to other people, well, what's wrong with me? Why am I not here? I'm only here. Well, you're fighting yourself and holding yourself back. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I forget who it was who said it, but comparison is the thief of joy for sure. Dave, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for all the stories you shared, all the wisdom and insights as well. And uh, certainly we'll look to connect with you again into the future. But thank you for joining me today on Speaking of Influence. John, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to like and subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It really helps. Why not grab yourself a copy of the last minute presentation checklist? If you want yours, visit presentinfluence.com and follow the download links. 
If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or you know someone who would, or you're interested in sponsoring the show or finding out more about presentation skills, please contact me, john at presentinfluence.com. You can find me on Twitter at John A. Ball, or on Facebook, join the group Speaking Influence and come and find out more, as well as getting daily content from me and updates on all the latest trainings and courses available. Also, check out my new podcast, Points of Change, all about life transformation and the people who make that happen. Lots of great conversations going on there, available on all good podcast players. Have an incredible week and join us again next time on Speaking of Influence.